what we really need is a complete rethink of the system. The question is whether that's really going to be beneficial to consumers or not, to have competitors when they aren't naturally there. The social media blackout of October 4th brought about confusion, relief, and frustration. Many enjoyed the moment of disconnect, which actually lasted roughly six hours, while others refreshed incessantly as they sat in a state of online purgatory. Whether you loved it, loathed it, or barely noticed it, it reminds us of how interconnected so many of our technology tools and platforms are. One owner, one outage, many consequences. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be looking at big tech, why it's so hard to tax, and what could be changed to fix that. Today's big tech companies have too much power, too much power over our economy, our society, and our democracy, said American politician and 2020 presidential primary candidate Elizabeth Warren. Warren brought the idea of breaking up big tech to the mainstream in 2019. She proposed policies to enforce large corporations to pay more in taxes and better regulate technology companies as a key part of her platform. But breaking up big tech, let alone taxing them fairly, is not an easily achievable task. Today, I'm speaking with economist Rachel Griffith, who we met last season in episode seven. In addition to her work around public policies related to health and nutrition, Griffith specializes in corporate tax and how corporate tax affects firms' decisions around innovation, location, hiring decisions, and more. Let's begin with the optics here. It seems to me that when most people think of corporate tax, the overarching feeling is that they view it as unfair, but that not much is truly being implemented to fix it either. Is this perception accurate? I think it's not as bad as the public perceives. So there's two real questions. One is, how do we want to tax corporate profits? And what are we trying to achieve when we tax corporate profits? And then the second thing is, who should get to tax them? And in a global world, that becomes complicated. So just to take those two things separately, the issue of should we tax corporate income or not? So most people, when they hear that, they think, should we tax rich people or not? So to take that apart for a minute, a tax system needs to be fair, but an individual tax doesn't necessarily need to be fair. Taxes have all sorts of purposes, and if a tax is trying to raise revenue or is trying to change people's behavior in some way through corrective taxation, like taxation of alcohol, it may be that you pay more than me, but in a different part of the tax system, you're compensated and I'm not. And so really what we want to look at is the fairness of the tax system as a whole. So then there's a question about whether corporate taxes are an effective way of taxing rich people or of ensuring that people do pay income tax. So in the UK, we did once set the corporate tax rate to zero for small um, companies. And overnight, a huge number of people became companies. The UK lost some huge amount of revenue in a very short amount of time, and we got rid of that loophole. So corporate taxes play a very important role in ensuring that we collect labor taxes, because otherwise we would all just be companies, not workers. But whether they really are an effective way of taxing rich people is unclear and actually is something in economics that we relatively poor understanding of. It all comes down to the incidence of the tax. So when we put a tax on corporate income, is it the shareholders that are made worse off by that? 
Or does the firm kind of shift that onto workers in lower wages or onto consumers in higher prices? And is the data pointing in one direction over the other? Best evidence we have now suggests that maybe about a third of it is shifted on and then two thirds of it fall onto shareholders. So maybe then we think that's a good tax on rich people. We need to be a little careful there because shareholders aren't all rich people. So in the UK, for example, a very substantial number of shares are held by pension funds. People who have pensions aren't the poorest people in society, but some of them are certainly not the richest either. Why is the question of whether or how to tax corporations such a difficult one to answer? We think typically that corporate taxes are pretty inefficient tax in that it has a big effect on the incentives for firms to invest. And investment is an important source of growth in the future. And so if we can raise tax revenue from other taxes that are less distortionary, then we may want to do that. Say we did want to tax corporate income. Most companies now operate globally. So who has the right to tax that income? The principle we have at the moment is the country that gets to tax the income is the country in which the value that the firm generates is created. Much of the debate in in corporate tax internationally is that the U.S. operates a set of tax laws that allows U.S. corporations to pay very little tax in the world. But that's because the U.S. has decided to do that. And if those are U.S. companies, does the U.S. have the right to do that? Or does Europe have some say in how how those companies are taxed? So let's look at tech companies in particular here. If you're a social media company headquartered in Silicon Valley, but your platform is used globally, how does one answer the question of where your value is created? Is it where the coding is being done? Or is it where the content is being created by your users? It's the forefront of that where the real tension lies. Because the principle that you tax companies where the value is created doesn't make that much sense when you have businesses that are based on intangible assets and uh, operate globally. I give seminars around the world in different countries. If you want to say my papers were worth something and they earned income and you wanted to tax them, half the time I'm working in an airplane that's flying between the US and the UK or going to Italy or something, who has the right to tax that? The value's in my head and my head moves all around the place. You know, is that the UK? Is it the US if I have that idea when I'm in the US? The current tax rules we have don't, really fit that system very well. And what we really need is a complete rethink of the system such that it works better with firms like that. What would be some ways in which we could rethink the system then to make it more equitable? What we have at the moment is a system based on trying to tax income at the source of the income, the source of where it was arose. If we just reverse that and said, instead, let's tax the income where it is credited to a person, So it's like the way that we tax um, people's personal income tax. So if you don't live in the UK, but you're working in the UK, but you're going to pay tax on the income you earn from where you live. Primarily, that's how personal income taxes work. It's your residence. It's the key place. Or you could do the same thing with corporate income. So when it's paid out to a taxpayer, it's based on where they reside. And so you switch it to rather than it being the source of the income generation, you tax it at the place where the income flows to an individual person. That makes a lot of sense. I, for example, am a Canadian living in Europe. I pay taxes in Europe and not Canada because that's where I generate the income. And it's also where I pay into and use the social services, healthcare, etc. 
Yeah. The difficulty with that is very rich people can avoid tax by moving stuff around and fiddling the rules. That's sort of always going to be true. And that's where a lot of the attention lies. How do you really tax very high income people? The disconnect between American companies and European regulations has been playing out publicly for years now. The EU has fined some of the world's biggest tech companies with fees in the billions for back taxes not collected, mostly by companies operating out of Ireland specifically. How did Ireland become the mecca for European-based tech headquarters? We could talk for hours about that, and there's been reams issued of written on that. The key thing there is that Ireland had a favored tax regime to try and encourage firms to come into Ireland. Some parts of the tax system are a little bit ambiguous, and a firm can ask for like an advance ruling from a country saying, we're about to do this sort of thing. If we do that next year, will this be the way it's taxed? So it gets rid of some of the uncertainty in the way that um, a firm will be taxed. And that was completely in line with the way that the U.S. tax system worked. Ireland gave them this credible statement that they were going to not be taxed on this income or be taxed in a low way. And the EU got upset about that and tried to force Ireland to tax. And that's been very controversial because does the EU have the right to do that? Do they? The actual laws they've used to do that aren't actually tax laws. So in the European agreement Corporate tax is something that individual countries have sovereignty over. It's not coordinated at the EU level. So the EU is using instead anti-competition law. That's all been very controversial and not something that Ireland wanted to happen. Just last month, the Financial Times reported that Ireland had finally ditched their sweetheart corporate tax rate deal and agreed to take part in the global rate of 15% at minimum. Many of the over 1,500 companies with headquarters in Ireland are U.S. tech giants, so big changes may be on the horizon. This global minimum of 15% was proposed by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, to ensure that multinational companies not only pay taxes, but pay a standardized rate across the board. According to the OECD, this landmark deal agreed to by 136 countries and jurisdictions represents more than 90% of the global GDP. It is expected to go into effect in 2023, and the OECD has also made it clear that this isn't intended to eliminate competition. Could you speak a bit about how competition is at play here, either with the OECD deal, the EU commissioner's fines, or otherwise? It's a very different um, use of competition law because in the past, countries were stopped from protecting their own industries that were inefficient. So when we had like shipbuilding and shipbuilding was in decline, the UK government was trying to protect the shipbuilding industry, which was a very inefficient industry. And so there were a bunch of agreements put in place at the European level saying that countries couldn't do that because that was going to lead to big inefficiencies because we were subsidizing these sorts of inefficient industries firms coming out of the U.S., where the U.S. has dominance in in these areas, and Europe has less efficient firms, and the concern that they have is that there's not competition because there are these super efficient firms coming in from the U.S. and taking over these industries. So the question is whether that's really going to be beneficial to consumers or not, to have competitive, to to try and foster European-based competitors when they aren't naturally there. 
So many of these tech companies have become hyper-politicized today. Is that part of the problem here as well? A lot of that is around the politics of it rather than the economics of it, yeah. This type of legislation would also fall under this umbrella of breaking up big tech. When laws are implemented to prevent anti-competitive mergers or competitive tax law jurisdictions, it does start to level out the playing field. With more competition in online marketplaces, e-commerce sites, and social platforms, we could, with time of course, be less susceptible to a situation where, because multiple platforms are owned by the same mega company, when one falls, they all do. And avoiding those types of outages does ultimately benefit the consumer and small businesses that need those platforms to survive. You taught an entire course on competition and growth at University College London, or UCL, and had some interesting learnings, did you not? Philippe Aguillon and I wrote a book together, which came out of a course that we taught. The course was going to be interspersed. We lectured every other week, and he did theory, I did empirics, he did theory, I did empirics. So we sat down and wrote our notes for the course and realized that we were telling students exactly opposite things. He was saying, well, theory tells you that competition discourages innovation because it reduces the potential rewards through like shrinking the amount of profits that you could earn in an economy. And so it, you would expect more competitive industries to have less competition. Whereas the data was telling us almost the opposite, saying more competitive industries were more innovative. And so from that, we started talking and talking with colleagues and ended up doing a whole series of papers and writing a book about how you can rationalize those two, two things and see how the, really what matters is competition for the market, not competition in the market. So if you're thinking about a new technology like mobile phones or something, it's not so much competition over the price in the moment, it's over who's going to have the cool next mobile phone that everyone wants. There's definitely a lesson in there. Yeah, and I think this is really important when you talk to young people about being a good researcher, is kind of be willing to give up your preconceptions. You know, go, go with what you see in the data and what you see in the world and don't stick to the thing you think you know. Join us next week when we'll try to answer the question, how much do managers matter? Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.